You're listening to A Wounding Church, the featured original essay in the October issue of Emily Stimson Chapman's monthly newsletter, Through a Glass Darkly. If I ever leave the church, it won't be because of what she teaches. It will be because of the people in the pews. I was scrolling Instagram last week when those words in bold print flashed by in a meme. They were nothing new. Over the past 20 years, I've heard some variation of them more times than I can count. It's not the Catholic Church I have a problem with, it's Catholics. The Church's teachings have never hurt me, but Catholics sure have. I don't find the Church's teachings hard to follow, but I sure do find Catholics hard to be around. I know sometimes when some people speak those words, what they actually mean is that they don't have a problem with abstract theological teachings, such as the Holy Trinity, but do have a problem with Catholics who hold to the Church's less abstract teachings on marriage and sexuality. They say it's the people they disagree with, but it is, in fact, the teachings. I don't want to talk about those people right now, though. I want to talk about those who have been genuinely hurt by the behavior of other Catholics. Single mothers shunned by their fellow parishioners. Families with lively children shamed by their priest. Victims of abuse who've suffered as much from negligent bishops and diocesan lawyers as they have from their abusers. I want to talk about everyone who has questioned their faith after a run-in with the Battle Axe Parish Secretary, the shrewish Catholic school teacher, the gossipy room mother, the crabby widower, or the deacon who seems to care more about finances than he does about Jesus. On one level, I understand why those people say things like, if I leave the church, it won't be because of her teachings, but because of her people. None of us experience the church in the abstract. We experience it in community. The community is what makes it real to us. It's our lived experience of the faith. And it's the most natural thing in the world to want that experience to reflect the fullness of the gospel's power. It's also the most natural thing in the world to be hurt, devastated even, when it doesn't. We don't have to pretend to feel otherwise. At the same time, we should not be shocked when other Catholics let us down. We should not be shaken when bishops stumble, priests fall, and our fellow parishioners disappoint. If we are, we have failed to understand the church's most fundamental teachings about sin, grace, and the nature of the church. So today, let's talk about those teachings, starting with sin. A short catechesis on sin. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, our first parents lived in perfect harmony with God, each other, and the created world. Made in God's image and likeness, Adam and Eve were filled with divine life. It animated their entire being. Then, for reasons about which speculations will, theologians will speculate until the end of time, man and woman broke faith with God. They refused to trust, rejecting his will and choosing their own will instead. With that refusal, the whole world ruptured. First came death, death of the body eventually, but more immediately, death of the soul. Adam and Eve's no ripped a hole in the human soul, exiling the gift of God's life from their souls and the souls of all their descendants. Their no also ripped a hole in all the world. From that moment forward, peace was no more. 
That metaphorical hole in our souls is what the church calls original sin. It is not a stain on our souls, but rather a lack in our souls. It is a deprivation in each one of us. We are all born without the life in us that was meant to be there, divine life. And so we cannot live the life we were meant to live. Importantly, original sin is not a sin we commit. It's a condition we inherit. It's a spiritual sickness that needs to be healed before we can become the men and women God made us to be and enter into everlasting life with him. That loss of divine life is the direct effect of original sin. Without it, we are spiritually dead. Original sin, however, also has a side effect, something called concupiscence, which means tendency to sin. Being born without God's life in our souls means that each of us is inclined to say no to God and yes to ourselves. Concupiscence is not a sin. It's not something for which we are responsible, but it does incline us to commit actual sins for which we do bear responsibility. Those sins can be outward deeds or inward thoughts, little sins, venial, or big sins, mortal, things we do, sins of commission, or things we don't do, sins of omission. Since we commit with full knowledge, formal, or since we commit without full knowledge, material. Either way, it is for all those sins that Jesus died on the cross. He died to atone for every last sin ever committed. From the first sin Adam and Eve committed in the garden to the last sin I committed this morning when I lost my temper over my husband's bad joke. So, that's sin. But what about grace? A short catechesis on grace. When God became man, he didn't just die. He also rose again. And rising to new life, Jesus secured new life for us too. His resurrection makes it possible for divine life to abide in our hearts once more. We receive that life, what the church calls sanctifying grace, in baptism. As the waters are poured over us, sanctifying grace rushes back into our souls, restoring the divine life that was always meant to be there. We are changed in an instant, becoming adopted sons and daughters of God, receiving an abiding power to walk in the Spirit. That's what baptism does. But what it does not do is take away the inclination to sin or shield us from temptations to sin. After baptism, the effects of living without sanctifying grace, even for just a moment, linger. Baptism deals with the direct effect of original sin, spiritual death, but it does not eradicate the side effect, a tendency to commit actual sins. And while the graces of the sacraments and graces of the moment, called actual grace, can counteract that side effect, nourishing God's life within us and strengthening us spiritually so we can call upon the power of the Spirit and say yes to God more readily, the tendency to say no to God remains. And we do say no, again and again and again. In big ways and little ways, in visible ways and hidden ways, we say no. Every last one of us. None of this means the graces we receive in baptism, in all the sacraments, or in the course of an ordinary day are any less real or powerful. It just means they're not magic. The graces Jesus earned for us have to be applied to us. They have to be received by us. They have to work within us, healing the wounds inflicted on us by our sins and the sins of others, 
strengthening us in virtue, helping us to mature as Christians. And this takes time. Often it takes a lifetime, which is why our fellow believers in the church will inevitably disappoint us. And this brings us to a short catechesis on the church. God is one and three. The church too, in a sense, is one and three. She is the one mystical body of Christ, perfect, beautiful, holy. But she exists in three ways, as the church triumphant, the church suffering, and the church militant. The church triumphant is the church's face in heaven. Her face is the face of all the angels and saints. The church suffering is the church's face in purgatory. There, her face is the face of all the holy souls experiencing their final purification. Last, the church militant is the church's face on earth. And here, her face is the face of fallen men and women working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Sometimes, if you don't blink, you will see the grace breaking through the cracks in the church's earthly face. You will see her beauty. You will experience her power. You will witness transformation. But most of the time, you won't. Day in and day out, what you usually will see is my face and your annoying neighbor's face and the face of the girl who spread lies about you in seventh grade. You'll see the face of the old woman who glares at you when your children make noise. You'll see the face of the priest who seems to prefer forms in triplicate to conversations with parishioners. You'll see the face of the usher, bloated and red from too much whiskey. You'll see your own face with your own smile, a smile that masks a world of hidden fears, desires, and sorrows. This is the church on earth. She is divine, but she's also human, made up of broken human beings who say no to grace like it's our job. She's also made up of people who have the incredibly difficult task of trying to live truth and proclaim truth in the midst of a culture that denies truth, all while working through our own brokenness. brokenness. That's not easy. Most of us are always doing at least one of those things badly. We cannot forget that. To keep our faith in this fallen world, it's not enough to know Jesus is God. We also have to know we are not, not a one of us. An understanding of the deep, deep brokenness of humanity has to be nestled right up next to an understanding of Jesus as savior, healer, and bread of life. This is part of what it means to put on Christ. We have to put on his eyes and see ourselves and everyone else in this world as he sees us. Beautiful, beloved, and broken to our core. As my husband likes to point out, we affirm this in every single mass. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words and what I have done and in what I have failed to do through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. It's not subtle, that plea for mercy. We beat our breasts. We repeat three times, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. And we all do it. It's not some optional part of the mass that the holy people get to opt out of. It's all of us 
pope and priest and layperson in the pew. We are all crying out to the heavens for all our neighbors to hear, I have greatly sinned. This is why God became man. This is why he died on a cross. This is why he established a church that could keep dispensing his grace day after day, century after century. Not because we're all basically nice people who need to be set straight on a few points of behavior, but because we are all, every one of us, great and grievous sinners who could be bought back from the devil with no lesser price than the life of God himself. We are all guilty. Choosing mercy. I have worked for the church for 20 years. Almost every close friend and family member I have is Catholic. And so nearly every person who has hurt me is Catholic. I have been lied to by Catholics. I have been lied about by Catholics. I have been spoken to cruelly and thoughtlessly by Catholics. I have been judged unfairly by Catholics. I have been ignored by Catholics. I have been betrayed by Catholics. And that's just the people in the pews. My rule of life is to stay far, far away from chancery offices and to never trust a bishop farther than I can throw him. All of which is to say, I'm not naive. I get how genuinely awful people who claim to love Christ and his church can be. I am not trying to minimize the hurt our fellow believers can cause. I know it. I have experienced it. And I also have committed it. But I'm still here receiving Jesus in the Eucharist every Sunday, praying my rosary every morning, writing about the faith every day. This is because of grace. It's also because I am firmly rooted in these teachings about sin, grace, and the church's very nature. They make sense to me and they make sense of what I see before me. They also guide my response when hurts do come. My prayer in writing this is that you will let them guide you too. When people in the church hurt you, remember that the journey to holiness is long, hard, and slow for everyone. There is not a one of us who doesn't fall along the way. And to those whom God has entrusted the greatest responsibility, they're also the ones the devil targets most intensely. Remember too, that when you look at another person, you can't see the temptations they face. You don't know their every wound and weakness. The devil does. He has had a lifetime to observe them, try them, find where they are wanting, and exploit that. <clears throat> also remember, you don't know the crosses people carry. Inside the heart of every person is an entire world of sorrow, worry, shame, fear, anxiety, and hurt. We all have been battered by life. We all are weighed down by years of stumbling through this valley of tears. No matter what a person's life looks like from the outside, on the inside, there is suffering. You cannot guess the weight or number of a person's crosses, but they are there and they are great. At the same time, remember that you don't know a person's every strength. You can't see the long, slow work God has been doing in their heart. You can't see the progress they've made and the healing they've received. You can't see how hard they're trying to fight their temptations and carry their crosses and do the right thing. You can't see how much worse off they would be without the faith and how much better they will eventually be as Christ continues to work on their heart in every circumstance 
including this circumstance which has so wounded you. God desires hell for no one. He created us for him. He longs for every sinner, no matter how depraved they are, to repent and choose him. No matter how badly you've been hurt by someone, pray for the grace to want that too. Pray for God's justice, but also pray for his mercy. That somehow God uses the wrong done to you to lead the one who hurt you back to him. One more thing. Remember that you can't see any of this in yourself either. Not fully. You don't know all the graces you've been given or the crosses you've been spared. You don't know the depths of the wounds sin has inflicted on you. You don't know the depths of the wounds your sins have inflicted on others. You don't know where you would be or who you would be without God's grace. All those things are hidden from you in God's mercy. He does not want pride to inflame you or guilt to destroy you. So he simply asks you to trust. Trust that his grace is sufficient. Trust that his mercy is boundless. Trust that he will not disappoint. And he won't. He will not leave you. He will never stop offering you every ounce of grace you need to choose him. But from everyone else, you need to expect disappointment. God showed us the gospel incarnate only once. Only one time have grace, love, mercy, and righteousness taken on a human form. And only one disciple, the mother of God, has perfectly followed in those footsteps. That's all we get. It will not happen again. The rest of us will hurt each other. The rest of us will scandalize each other. The rest of us will leave each other wondering why, if grace is so real, it doesn't do more for our fellow believers. And that includes ourselves. We all need forgiveness and mercy and compassion. And the more we extend that to others, the more it is extended to us. Jesus said so. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Matthew 7, 2. So extend mercy, extend compassion, accept every thoughtless word spoken to you as penance for the thoughtless words you've spoken to others. Offer up every evil done to you in reparation for the evil you have done. Draw boundaries when you need to draw boundaries. Seek justice when justice needs to be sought, but never seek vengeance. Most of all, when others tempt you to walk away from Christ, remember that from the cross, he saw you. He saw all the wrong you have done and all the wrong you will ever do. But he still loved you. He still suffered for you. He still remained faithful to his mission to die for you. Remember that. Then beg him for the grace to remain faithful to. You've been listening to the audio essay from Through a Glass Darkly, Emily Stimson Chapman's monthly newsletter. For more content, including book, podcast, and recipe recommendations, check out the written version as well. Thank you.